0: go ahead and turn in our Bibles to the book of Micah, and we're going to be beginning in chapter 1, verse 1 of Micah. As you're turning there, just as a kind of uh, point of orientation here, Micah's name literally means who is like Yahweh, who is like God. And my goal today is to illustrate why that is such an appropriate assessment of this book. And you'll see by the end of the book that Micah is raising the very same question, who is like, who is like our God? So Micah 1, verse 1, is most of the information that we have on the prophet Micah. So let me read that for us. The word of the Lord came to Micah of Moresheth in the days of Jotham, Ahaz, and Hezekiah, kings of Judah, which he saw concerning Samaria and Jerusalem. We'll stop there for a second. So this introduction tells us primarily three things about the prophet Micah. Number one, the time of his his ministry. That is, that he prophesied during the days of Jotham and Ahaz and Hezekiah, which places him around, as you'll see in your outline, the 8th century B.C. And secondly, it tells us about his hometown. So his hometown being Moresheth. uh, Moresheth Gath is the longer rendering of that. Um, Moresheth was a small agrarian community, about 21 miles outside, about southwest of Jerusalem. So he's not a big city prophet. He's uh, kind of a small town guy, if you will. And so... Um, third, it's, it's going to tell us who his prophecy is concerning. Now this prophecy here says it's concerning Samaria and Jerusalem. And if you know kind of the layout of Israel at this point in history, you know that it's in the divided kingdom. So there's the northern kingdom of Israel, and then there's the southern kingdom of Judah. Samaria is kind of the capital city, the, uh, the big influential city of the northern kingdom. And then in the southern kingdom, you have uh, Jerusalem. And so uh, Micah himself was a Judean prophet, and the kings that he names here are Judean kings. Uh, if you were to go back to the second, uh, back to second Kings, where he's, you know, it's listing all the kings, you'll see that interspersed in between some of these kings that he names here uh, are different kings, and those are, that's because he's naming Judean kings. But we shouldn't be, the reason I'm pointing this out is we shouldn't be led to think that he's just prophesying concerning one kingdom. It's all of Israel who's uh, being prophesied about here. So, uh, that's just, I think, an important point of context for us here. Secondly, on your handout, in terms of background, uh, I don't want to spend too much time here, but uh, an important factor is that um, the Neo-Assyrian Empire was rising in their dominance, You're not going to find much in the book of Micah itself that talks about Assyria, but it's an important point of historical context. During the 8th century, Assyria was the powerhouse nation. Bruce Waltke, a commentator on this this book, says, In his lifetime, speaking of Micah, in his lifetime, two volatile forces were at work in Israel's history. Number one, moral corruption, which we're going to get to uh, here in just a moment. There's moral corruption within, and the rising Neo Assyrian Empire without. This aggressive, ruthless state was bent on subduing its neighbors to enrich itself with their taxes. So, given the time, and given some of the uh, some of the countries, some of the powerhouse countries that were uh, present at the time of Micah's prophesying, uh, I think this is you know we'll, we'll see some of the importance of this. Uh, Pan out as we go throughout the book of Micah, but that's what we're looking at as far as the setting of the book. So let me turn to Micah's actual message here, and I think you'll see that there's just a few uh, a few things that are that are dominant within the book of Micah. Now, covering a book like Micah in uh, a matter of thirty-five forty minutes is an impossible task if you're going to do it adequately. But the fact is, is I think the the some of the Points on your outline here, I think, are generally agreed upon to be uh, some of the most prevalent themes within Micah. So the first one that we're going to look at is Micah's, Micah's message is imminent destruction. Imminent destruction. The message of Micah does not start off with good news if you're Samaria or Jerusalem. It starts off and it hits them right in the chops. So let's read here. Uh, in chapter 1, verses 2 through 6, I'll read it for you. Hear, you peoples, all of you, pay attention, O earth, and all that is in it, and let the Lord God be a witness against you, the Lord from his holy temple. For behold, the Lord is coming out of his place, and will come down and tread upon the high places of the earth. And the mountains will melt under him, and the valleys will split open like wax before the fire like waters poured down a steep place. All this, here's the reason, all this for the transgression of Jacob and for the sins of the house of Israel. What is the transgression of Jacob? Is it not Samaria? And what is the high place of Judah? Is it not Jerusalem? Therefore, I will make Samaria a heap in the open country, a place for planting vineyards. And I will pour down her stones into the valley and uncover her foundations. All her carved images shall be beaten to pieces. All her wages shall be burned with fire. And all her idols I will lay waste. For from the fee of a prostitute she gathered them, and to the fee of a prostitute they shall return. So Micah wastes very little time getting into the, the, uh, the crux of his message. Or at least, uh, initially, the crux of his message, which was the impending doom that is about to befall Samaria and Jerusalem. Now, this would be terrifying news if you are a resident, or if you lived in uh, Samaria or Jerusalem, or really even the surrounding uh, provinces, or the uh, surrounding, I guess, towns would be more accurate. Micah's grieving due to the message that he received is is very telling you look at verses 8 and 9, for this I will lament and wail. I will go stripped and naked. I will make lamentation like the jackals and mourning like the ostriches. I don't know what that's like personally. I'd have never heard an ostrich mourn, but I can't imagine it's, it's all that pretty. For her wound is incurable and it has come to Judah. It has reached to the gate of my people Jerusalem. Commentator Leslie Allen makes the point that in this culture, mourning looks a lot different than it does in our present day. So she says, or he says, excuse me, for most of the mourning is a quiet affair, symbolized by drawn curtains and the declining of invitations. But for the Israelite, it was a matter of noisy expression of one's anguish. The more keenly felt the bereavement, the louder the shrieking. As you see in verses 8 and 9, Micah did not take to this news well. He's very loud, he's mourning, he's lamenting and wailing. That's because this is terrible news that has befallen, befallen his country. So this is exactly what Micah, Micah's mourning is, uh, it corresponds well with what's actually happening. And you have more uh, scripture references there uh, to kind of support um, the fact that Israel is going to be judged. You'll see in um, chapter 2, verse 3, Therefore thus says, the Lord, behold, against this family I am devising disaster from which you cannot remove your necks and you shall not walk haughtily for it will be a time of disaster. So that is probably the primary theme that you see in the book of Micah that there is judgment and condemnation. Now, uh, Put in there, there's uh, the means by which God used, or the means by which God uh, enacted his judgment was the Assyrian Empire, as we just talked about. Isaiah, a counterpart of Micah, prophesied concerning the Assyrians. Listen to Isaiah chapter 10, verses 5 and 6. Woe to Assyria, the rod of my anger. The staff in their hands is my fury. Against a godless nation, meaning Israel against a godless nation. I send him against the people of my wrath. I command him to take spoil and seize plunder, and to tread them down like mire of the streets. And history actually bears out this reality that Assyria did um, come and attack Jerusalem and uh, and Samaria. So we know this actually happened. And and, and if you kind of take what's given in uh, Isaiah and and Second Kings. We know that this was the Lord's means by which He enacted some of His judgment. Secondly, there's the Babylonian exile. You can look; actually, does say this in Micah 4:10 that I'll just read it to you: "Writhe and groan, O daughter of Zion, like a woman in labor. For now you shall go out from the city and dwell in the open country. You shall go to Babylon. There you shall be rescued. There the Lord will redeem you from the hand of." your enemies. If you're even vaguely familiar with the historical context of the Old Testament, you'll know that this did happen. It happened in about uh, 597 BC, nearly about, give or take, 100 years after this prophecy. And so this did come to bear. And we know that this was the judgment of no other than Yahweh. Now, I say all this I tell you the means by which God used to judge his people, the Assyrian Empire or Babylon. The point isn't necessarily who. Micah's not making the point that Assyria is going to invade you and and it's the Assyrians doing it or that it's uh, Babylon's going to come bring you into exile because, well, they're just going to do it. The point is that God was judging his people. Micah's emphasis was that the coming destruction although it would come by means of Assyria and Babylon, was nonetheless from God. Israel is in deep trouble and judgment is at their doorstep, but their fear should not be primarily of the Assyrian or the Babylonian, but of God himself. It's God who says, I will make Samaria a heap in verse six. This is the judgment of the Lord concerning his people. This leads to the I think, logical question, well, why is this happening? So, this is going to happen, it's terrible news, judgment is about to befall Israel, so why? This brings us to your uh, next point here, comprehensive corruption. Comprehensive corruption, and you find these concepts mainly throughout chapters uh, 1 through 3. Israel, both in the northern and southern kingdom, was being judged because of their moral decay within their societies. And this wasn't happening in in one or two specific spheres of society. It's really evidently a thorough corruption. From top to bottom, Israel was indulging themselves in sin. Now, there are a few specific sins within Israel that that are named in the book of Micah. The first, as you'll see on your handout, is rampant idolatry. See a few scripture references there. I'm just going to look at uh, chapter 1, verse 7, but if you have some time, go check out Second Kings 17, 7-23. Uh, that uh, gives a very thorough description of, of uh, the idolatry that was rampant within Israel. But let me read chapter 1, verse 7. All her carved images shall be beaten to pieces. All her wages shall be burned with fire. And all the idols I will lay waste, for from the fee of a prostitute she gathered them. And to the fee of a prostitute, they shall return. You might wonder about the inclusion here of, of prostitution. You see that evidently there are carved images and there's idols that are being made, but then a prostitution gets brought into this. So very briefly, I think this will give us a good picture of kind of the, the, uh, the depraved society in which uh, Micah was prophesying. The fees that were pra- uh, paid to a prostitute went directly to uh, cultic votaries or people that were devoted themselves, uh, that, that devoted themselves to the, uh, to the cults, to, to uh, yeah, basically just the cults of the day. And those cultic votaries who would then take the money, they would take the money and they would construct idols from that money. And they would construct idols made of expensive metals like gold and silver. In other words, the cult prostitution was what funded the community's idolatry. So Micah, in essence, is saying that these idols, made of precious metals, would be destroyed. And these metals would be the money that would pay for the process to happen again somewhere else. So, uh, for example, Assyria would come in and beat down the idols, take the metals... And then it would happen again. They would go pay a prostitute and would go to a votary and then more idols. Now say all that to give you a picture of how depraved Israel was at this time with idolatry and cult practices. Secondly, there's greed-fueled oppression. You'll see this in chapter 2, verses 1 through 2, and then I'll read verse 9 as well. Woe to those who devise wickedness, And and work evil on their beds. When the morning dawns, they perform it because it is in their power. They covet fields and seize them, and houses and take them away. They oppress a man, a man and his house, a man and his inheritance. Verse nine: the woman of my people, or the women of my people, excuse me. You drive out from their delightful houses, from. Their young children, you take away my splendor forever. These verses are naming the sin of people who have significantly more power within Israel than anyone else, whether because of money or position. It talks about their obsession and delight in their evil wickedness. They're laying in bed and thinking about what they're going to do tomorrow. They're thinking, you know, I, I really like his house. It's a good house. It's set up on a hill. You can see Jerusalem, right? A lot of land. And there's a, he says, I'm going to take that. I'm going to wake up in the morning, we're going to go get it. Because he can't. These people were bent on oppression because they could. According to verse 2, these powerful people would covet someone else's land or house. Oppression was directed towards men, women, and children alike, as we read. This was real oppression of the powerful towards the powerless in the society of Israel. Notice the blatant oppression began with the subtle sin of being covetous. This is kind of an aside, and we're going to get to more application later. But covetousness, a heart issue, made its way into blatant idolatry. I like how Richard Caldwell, one of our campus pastors at TES, put this. He taught through the book of Micah recently. He says, before their evil deeds are the work of their hands, they are first the work of their hearts. Again, we're going to circle back around to this. But let this be a reminder to you of the deadly nature of sin and its origination within the human heart. This is the level in which we fight sin at the heart level. Thirdly, top level injustice. Let me read here chapter 3, verses 1 through 13. And I said, "Hear you, heads of Jacob, and rulers, rulers of the house of Israel. Is is it not for you to know justice? You who hate the good and love the evil, who tear the skin off my people and their flesh from off their bones, who eat the flesh of my people and flay their skin from off them, and break their bones in pieces and chop them like meat in a pot, like flesh in a cauldron." Very descriptive language. Verse 4 Then they will cry to the Lord, but he will not answer them. He will hide his face from them at that time, because they have made their deeds evil. Thus says the Lord concerning the prophets, who lead my people astray, who cry peace when they have something to eat, but declare war against him who puts nothing into their mouths. Therefore it shall be night to you without vision, and darkness to you without divination. The sun shall go down on the prophets, and the day shall be black over them. The seers shall be disgraced, and the diviners put to shame. They shall all cover their lips, for there is no answer from God. But as for me, I am filled with power, with the Spirit of the Lord, and with with justice and might to declare to Jacob his transgression, and to Israel his sin. Hear this, you heads of the house of Israel heads of the house of Jacob and rulers of the house of Israel who detest justice and make crooked all that is straight, who build Zion with blood and Jerusalem with iniquity. Its heads give judgment for a bribe, its priests teach for a price, its prophets practice divination for money. Yet they lean on the Lord and say, is it not the Lord in the midst of us? No disaster shall come upon us. Therefore, because of you, Zion, shall be plowed as a field. Jerusalem shall become a heap of ruins, and the mountain of the house a wooded height. There is much to unpack in these verses, yet again, it's obvious what is going on. There is broad-scale injustice happening in Israel. You see some of the language used. It's startling language. We talked about this book last semester in, in, uh, in seminary, and I remember reading this section and just being almost grossed out. But I think that's what it's meant to do. I think it's meant to wake you up to what's happening in Israel here. It's meant to wake Israel up. This is what you're doing. You're eating the flesh of your own people. It's meant to shock you into the reality of what's happening. There's injustice on the part of the people who should know foremost— what justice should look like. And in fact, verse 9 says, they hate justice. So first in this section, he he addresses the heads of Israel. These are the powerful of Israel, likely the judges in Israel. These judges have a, apparently a, a perverted view of morality, calling what is evil good and what is good evil. They love and hate, love good, hate evil, and make crooked what is straight. But secondly, he addresses the prophets who are charged with the crime of leading my people astray. These people who are meant to be speaking on behalf of God, we're doing all but. Micah provide, provides, by the way, in verse 8, a wonderful example of, of what it means to be a, a faithful prophet, someone who is speaking on behalf of the Lord faithfully. He says, but as for me, I'm filled with power, with the Spirit of the Lord with justice and might to declare to Jacob his transgression and to Israel his sin verse 11 gives us a summation of all of chapter 3 and says that they do all these wicked things and they claim that the Lord is with us therefore judgment is coming says verse 12 so that's the evidence and the description of the moral rot that has occurred within Israel and this provides the basis upon which the Lord is going to judge. We're going to, again, look at some more application from this in just a bit. but Let's keep moving on. Third point here of Micah's message is genuine contrition. The main question he is asking here is, is how can we be made right with God? How, how do we come back into the presence of God after we've strayed? So look at chapter 6. We're going to be looking at verses 6 through 8. With what shall I come before the Lord and bow myself before God on high? Shall I come before him with burnt offerings, with calves a year old? Will the Lord be pleased with thousands of rams, with tens of or ten thousands of rivers of oil? Shall I give my firstborn for my transgression, the fruit of my body for the sin of my soul? He has told you, O man, what is good. And what does the Lord require of you but to do justice, to love kindness, and to walk humbly with your God? The main question he asks, and he opens up with this in verse 6, with what shall I come before the Lord? And bow myself before God on high. This is the appropriate question. This is the question that Israel should be asking. Exposed sins laid bare, imminent judgment. This is the right question to ask. How do I come before God? Now, Micah raises a series of rhetorical questions that apparently increase in some of the intensity of of uh, of the question. So. The inferred answer to all of these, these, this line of questions, is no. Yahweh will not be pleased with burnt offerings or thousands of rams or ten thousands of rivers of oil or even the sacrifice of his firstborn. The only thing required is found in verse 8, which could be a sermon within itself, and it's a great one to memorize if you so choose. This is the simple and succinct way that God wanted Israel to respond. He wanted them to repent. And it gives a description of what that should look like. Verse 8 here. So we see Micah's desire for reconciliation and what the the Lord wants that to look like and very simply do justice and love kindness and walk humbly with your God. I won't read this but also check out Chapter 7, verses uh, 1 through ten they, uh, 10, they express a similar attitude uh, with regard to contrition over sin and, and uh, a commitment to God. Great verses there as well. Let's keep moving. Letter D, there in your hand. handout, promised restoration. There's a promised restoration that's going to come to Israel, and this is going to come in about three, <coughs> excuse me, three forms that are all connected at some level. But let me kind of separate what I think Micah separates here. First is that Israel, excuse me, will be reestablished. Look at chapter 2, verses 12 through 13 there. Let me see if I have that right. Oh yeah, okay. Okay. I will surely assemble all of you, O Jacob. I will gather the remnant of Israel. I'll set them together like sheep in a fold, like a flock in its pasture. A noisy multitude of men. He who opens the breach goes up before them. They break through and pass the gate going out by it. Their king passes on before them and the Lord at their head. And let me also read chapter 4, verses 1 through 3. It says, It shall come to pass in the latter days, that the mountain of the house of the Lord shall be established as the highest of the mountains. It shall be lifted up above the hills, and peoples shall flow to it. And many nations shall come and say, Come, let us go up to the mountain of the Lord, to the house of the God of Jacob, that he may teach us his ways, and that we may walk in his paths. For out of Zion shall go forth the law and the word of the Lord from Jerusalem. He shall judge between many peoples and shall decide disputes for strong nations far away. And they shall beat their swords into plowshares and their spears into pruning hooks. Nation shall not lift up sword against nation, neither shall they learn war anymore. There's a promise here that in the midst of certain judgment, in the midst of a nation in decline, a nation that is perverse, calling what is good evil and what is evil good everything we talked about, they will one day, by the work of the Lord, become the center of morality. That the wicked and the perverse Israel will become the moral example setters. Nations will flow to Jerusalem to receive instruction and the word of the Lord. It's a wonderful promise. God promises a morally restored Israel amid its current immoral state. Secondly, there's a ruler to come. This is chapter five, verses one through five. Now muster your troops, O daughter of troops. Siege is laid against us. With a rod they strike the uh, judge of Israel on the cheek. But you, O Bethlehem, uh, I should have practiced this pronunciation, Uh, Ephrathah, (laughs) Uh, who are too little to be among the clans of Judah, from you shall come forth for me. One who is to be ruler in Israel, whose coming forth is from of old, from ancient days. Therefore, he shall give them up until the time when she who is in labor has given birth, then the rest of his brothers shall return to the people of Israel. God promises a ruler from Israel who will shepherd his people. This leader will come from the seemingly insignificant town of Bethlehem. And just realize the magnificent promise that this is. The same nation that is actively being judged is also actively being promised a savior. This prophecy of a ruler is, as we know, a prophecy of Jesus Christ. You see your scripture reference there, in Matthew 2, 6, quotes this section of verses and applies it to Christ. So what a glorious gift to a nation that's in decline. What a gift that Jesus is not only to Israel, but to all of mankind. We'll talk more about this in a few moments. Lastly, we read uh, in chapter 7, verse 20. If you'll turn there. It says, you will show faithfulness to Jacob and steadfast love to Abraham as you have sworn to our fathers from the days of old. And so this is under the bullet bullet point covenant faithfulness. And this is the covenant faithfulness of our God. God's character and God's faithfulness to his word is the hope for Israel in this moment. God's promise to Abraham in Genesis 12 that I will make you a great nation or to Jacob in Genesis 28 that in you and your offspring shall all the families of the earth be blessed. These promises would not fall flat. These promises would not fall flat and it's a great encouragement to and a great hope for Israel. So, so what we've seen so far here is the sin that is evident within Israel, the judgment that's going to come because of that sin, and then some hope, some glimmers of hope in the midst of all of this. So let's move on to some present day relevance for the book of Micah. Let's bring this into 2021. What can we take away from what we know? First, God is not ambivalent towards sin. God hated the sin of his people Israel and it was evident by his judgment upon them. He was not Willing to just let it slide. He didn't take it lightly. God took Israel's sin very seriously. But Christian, God has not changed his attitude towards sin. Sin still brings consequences, sin still brings judgment. Nothing has changed in that regard. So, my question is how do you view your own sin? Do you take your own sin lightly? Even the subtle sins, like even covetousness, the heart-level sins that no one can see, do you think of those as inconsequential? Because God does not. Or do you see your sin as something that put Jesus on the cross? Another question is, how do you view other people's sin? Do you look at the unbelieving world with indifference? Do we treat their sin lightly? Are we entertained by their sin? Until you grasp the weightiness of God's attitude towards sinners and sin alike, you will not fully grasp the urgency for evangelism. Let me say that again. Until you grasp the weightiness of God's attitude towards sin and sinners, you will not fully grasp. The urgency of the call for evangelism. Second here, God is, we don't want to let her be, God is intensely opposed to human oppression. So yes, I know that oppression is a bit of a buzzword right now. So I need to be careful. I don't want to get too deep into it. Owen Strayan gave a wonderful, uh, I think it was a two-week series on on some of these ideas uh, about a month or two ago. So check those out on the website if you're interested but oppression is a word that can have a lot of cultural baggage thrown onto it and so without getting into the weeds let me just say this do not let our cultures abuse of the idea of oppression and what our response should be to oppression cloud what is true about God let me say it again Don't let our culture's misidentification of what oppression is or misidentification of how we as the church should respond to the idea of oppression cloud what is true about the character of God and his disposition towards oppression. We are not to assume God is indifferent towards the oppressed. God hates any form of oppression and unjust treatment it's evident in Micah. You can't get over it. There's, just, there's no two ways about it. So wherever we see in our lives legitimate oppression and injustice taking place, and Christian it does, it takes place worldwide, oppose it because God opposes it. You can have confidence that God opposes the oppressed or their oppressors, excuse me. Let us see here is that God is matchless in his compassion in light of human transgression. So the hero of the book of Micah is God. Indeed, that can be said about the whole uh, Bible, but I think Micah goes to extra lengths to remind us that there is no one like God. A book that started with terrible news for Israel Ends with God being gracious. The last thing that's highlighted in the book of Micah is God's compassion and his love for Israel. God declared judgment on Israel because of their wickedness, yet he still displayed a compassionate heart to Israel. Christian, in our sin, before, before maybe you were converted, you were in deep sin. And as you know, you were in deep trouble with God. Just as Israel was. Sin brings death. That's been true from the beginning. The day that you eat of this apple, what happens? You shall surely die. That is the consequence of sin. Because of Christ's we can have confidence that we can stand before a holy God who, although has not changed his disposition towards sin, has laid our penalty on a perfect Savior who was to be born in Bethlehem, who was born in Bethlehem. We too have committed sin that God hates, but God has provided means for escaping his wrath, and that is in the blood of Jesus Christ. And so we too can join in here. Let me just read the last section here. Who is a God like you, pardoning iniquity and passing over transgression for the remnant of his inheritance? He does not retain his anger forever because he delights in steadfast love. He will again have compassion on us. He will tread our iniquities underfoot. He will cast all all of our sins into the depths of the sea. You will show faithfulness to Jacob and steadfast love to Abraham, as you have sworn to our fathers from the days of old. Christian, we can join in on this last remark of Micah that who is like God? Who is like God? That he would, to sinners that deserve nothing but his condemnation, that he would provide the way of escape, the means of escape, and that is through Jesus Christ. And so glory be to God. Who is like God? I hope that's the main thing that you take away from, from the book of Micah. In the midst of all of that's going on, let the last couple of verses be instructive. Who is like God? Let me pray for us here.